on April 19th, 2014, more than 36,000 runners hit the pavement for the 118th running of the Boston Marathon. You might remember that a year earlier, in 2013, a bomb had gone off at the marathon, killing three people and wounding many. So needless to say, the race in 2014 was filled with emotion. And at the end of the race, the winner added even more excitement to those who were gathered at the finish line. Meb, Meb Keflazigi was an American, and an American had not won the Boston Marathon since 1983. And further, he was 38 years old, which means that he was the oldest person to win the marathon in 83 years. And as he crossed the finish line, many in the crowd were shouting, USA, USA, and he finished, with his, uh, finished the race with his hands in the air, held high in joy and triumph. This morning, we are continuing to make our way through the New Testament book of Philippians. And in the opening 11 verses of chapter 3, which we looked at two weeks ago, Paul had given an urgent warning to the Philippian church to protect the unity of, or the purity of the gospel. Paul had proclaimed that a person could be saved by simply repenting of their sin and putting their faith in Jesus' work on the cross. It's what we called a Jesus plus nothing plan of salvation, trusting in Christ alone, no good works required. But now, a group of people from Jerusalem called Judaizers were coming to the various churches that Paul had started, and they were promoting a false gospel. They were saying that salvation required more things. It required circumcision and keeping the Old Testament law. It was a gospel of Jesus plus good works. And as you can imagine, this was terribly confusing and discouraging to these brand new believers in these new little churches that Paul had started. And we don't know for sure if the, if the Judaizers had arrived in Philippi yet, but Paul reasoned it was just a matter of time. And so he warned them, explaining that human effort and spiritual credentials counted for exactly nothing in terms of salvation. Exactly nothing. The only thing that mattered for salvation was the surpassing greatness of knowing and trusting Christ. And in the final verses of that first half of the chapter, Paul described the passionate yearning that he still feels to know Christ more intimately, to experience him more fully, and to surrender to him more completely. Paul yearned for that. Now this morning, we're going to look at verses 12 through 21, the second half of the chapter. And in this section, Paul uses kind of intense running language, marathon language and imagery to tell the Philippians that his spiritual hunger for knowing Christ has not slowed down one bit. After walking with Christ for nearly 30 years now, Paul's passion to know Christ still burns white hot in him. 
And he wants the believers in Philippi and us in Princeton to feed their own passions for knowing Christ and to fan those passions into flame until they burn like a fire in our souls. In a way, Paul is calling out to us and saying, join me in this journey of faith and together we will seek the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as fully as possible in every part of our life. Join me in it, won't you, Paul says. And in the 10 verses we're looking at this morning, Paul gives the Philippians five key truths about this journey of faith that he is urging them and inviting them to join him in. And for the sake of time, I'm going to jump right in and walk us through those five truths that Paul reveals. The first foundational truth that we discover in this section is that our journey of faith is a process. Our journey of faith is a process. Look at verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You know, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's story, you're probably familiar with his salvation experience. And you know that he met Christ Jesus while traveling on a dusty road to Damascus. He was headed to Damascus in order to round up Christians and throw them in prison. He was persecuting the church. Paul was deeply entrenched in Orthodox Judaism. He was proud of his pedigree. He trusted completely in his traditions and all his confidence was in his credentials. But then he met Jesus and he experienced uh, the overturning of his apple cart. His whole world was turned upside down. His credentials and achievements disintegrated and he experienced salvation by repenting and placing his trust in the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross. And in doing so, Paul experienced God's mercy and his forgiveness and his joy. Paul's heart was radically transformed in that experience and he never really recuperated from it. But this doesn't mean Paul had arrived, that somehow he had achieved the mark. And I love this about Paul. I love that Paul could humbly acknowledge that he had not yet obtained perfection. He wasn't fully spiritually mature, yet he still had more to learn. He could easily and readily admit that he still struggled against the desires of the flesh, like he described in Romans chapter 7. Paul could say, I do not yet know and live for Christ as I fully desire, as fully as I desire. I don't, I don't know and live for him as fully as I desire. This journey of coming to know Christ intimately, it's a process. It's a process. But Paul says, but I press on, I press on, and that term is a hunting term. It means I'm going to chase or hunt something down. Paul's saying, I'm looking for it, I'm after it. 
Paul is saying, on the Damascus road, Christ Jesus took hold of me for a purpose. And while I have not yet become all that Christ has in mind for me, I am pressing on. I am in pursuit to own that purpose and to make it my own. I think the Philippians probably looked at Paul and saw a spiritual giant, probably wondering, how would we ever become like Paul? But you need to know, Paul didn't see himself that way. Paul saw himself as a work in progress. Paul understood the journey of faith is a process, and Paul was simply making every possible effort to make measurable progress each day. And friends, I think that should be our goal as well. The journey of faith of coming to know Christ is a process. And so I believe our goal should be progress, one step at a time. You know, as over the years as I have tried to pastor and shepherd people, the question I have often asked, especially when I was a small group leader, was what is the next step of spiritual growth the Lord is encouraging you to take, and how can I help you take it? What is the next step of spiritual growth that the Lord is encouraging you to take? And how can I help you take it? The idea was to just focus on the next step. And I say that because some people believe the journey of faith is more like a leap. As if they are going to move from atheist to missionary in a single bound. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Spiritual growth towards maturity is a process. It's a series of small steps, making progress and moving forward a little bit each day. And this morning, I wonder if there might be some of you who need to lay down a burden that you have been carrying, a burden of the one giant leap expectation. Press on, indeed, like Paul did, press on, but give yourself permission to simply focus on what's the next step that God is asking you to do and be faithful in that step. The second foundational truth that Paul reveals is this. He says, our journey of faith requires a passionate pursuit of Jesus. Our journey of faith requires a passionate pursuit of Jesus. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining for what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Unlike the Judaizers who flaunted their spiritual maturity and who flashed their spiritual credentials in, in order to intimidate and impress, Paul just simply and humbly acknowledged that he had not yet taken hold of it. He was not yet as spiritually mature as he wanted to be. And in these verses, Paul uses runner's language, marathon imagery. And he was alluding to the Grecian games, which his readers would have been familiar with. And you know, Paul often used the imagery of a marathon 
to describe the Christian life. He saw the Christian life as a race to be run with passion. Give it everything you've got, he would say. Run with the intention to win it. Look again at his wording. He says, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on uh, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. See, Paul had a single aim, one great purpose of soul, to become like Jesus. And he pursued that goal with passion, and he would not be detoured or distracted, and he renounced everything that stood in the way of becoming more like Christ. He said, I forget what is behind. You know, in serious competition, runners don't look over their shoulders as they run, right? Because it slows them down. They keep their eyes focused ahead. And Paul had his gaze fixed on knowing and trusting Christ as fully as possible. And Paul would not allow his mind to be diverted or distracted from that by anything, not even his past, not even his past. Now, when Paul says this, forgetting what is behind, he's not talking about forgetting people or vital life lessons that I've learned or forgetting the wonderful things that God has done in his life. That's not what Paul means when he says that. In this context, when Paul says, I forget what is behind, what he's talking about is his former way of life in Judaism. He says, I'm going to forget about the self-righteous striving. I'm going to let go of the pride and the blasphemy and the heresy that we're all part of that life. I'm going to forget about all the harm that, that he had done in persecuting the church. Paul is forgetting about all the rubbish that littered his former life, the achievements and credentials. He forgets them, puts them out of his mind, and disregards them completely. Friends, if your goal is to move forward in your spiritual life, you cannot dwell in the past in the same way that we don't drive our cars forward by staring in the rearview mirror, right? To make progress in our journey of faith, we have to let go of what is behind us and we need to fix our gaze on the finish line. You know, reliving our past endangers us to two things. First, we can become vulnerable to pride over past accomplishments, or we become, we become susceptible to discouragement over past failures. The past is over, friends, and it can't be changed. We can't undo anything that happened. But we can accept God's grace. We can learn from the past. We can move on we move on so that our past does not become a barrier to our future. Paul says, not only am I forgetting what is behind, but I'm straining for what is ahead. And again, this is running language. Straining every muscle for forward motion. That's what the idea is. It's pushing his body with all his might to move forward. That's the imagery. Paul's heart, soul, mind, and strength were focused on making progress towards the goal in front of him. 
And he says again, I press on towards the goal. In the Grecian games, they would put a post or some kind of a marker uh, at the finish line so that the runners could concentrate on the goal. The race demanded a runner's focus. They demanded his strongest efforts, but the victory was worth that extreme exertion. It was worth it. And Paul says, the same is true for you and me. Only we are running a race far more important. Far more important. We're not running for earthly trophies, you and I. We are running for eternal rewards. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. There's that passionate pursuit again. And he goes on. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, Paul says, I do not run like a man uh, running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, no, I don't. I train my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. See what Paul is saying here? Paul's not trying to earn his salvation. He's not trying to uh, merit a few extra gold stars from God. Paul was just captivated by the amazing grace that, been that had been shown to him. But Paul would say, I can't believe grace like that would be shown to someone the likes of me. I was a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer. I was the chief of sinners. But amazing grace came my way. And I think in a response of humble gratitude, Paul devoted himself, dedicated his whole life to being ready and available for all that God wanted to do in him and through him. And Paul was zealous to not be distracted by anything, to be slowed down by nothing in this race. Paul said, I'm going to run, and I'm going to run to win. I want to get that prize. And friends, these same desires should be stirring and growing in our hearts as well. The prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ compels us to run our race with passion and to pursue Jesus with every ounce of energy we can give. There was a missionary named Jim Elliott a number of years ago. He lost his life in the late 1950s. He was trying to bring the message of Jesus to a hostile tribe in the jungles of Ecuador, and they killed him. He landed on the beach and didn't hardly get a word out, and they killed him. But his zeal for sharing the gospel and for pursuing what Christ had called him to was immortalized in these words. Jim Elliott said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that to you again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Before I move on to point number three, let me pause here and ask you a, a question. 
What keeps you from pursuing Jesus with passion? What holds you back? Is there something in your past? Maybe there's a fear lingering back there. Maybe there's a failure or a mistake that you've never been able to get free from. Maybe there's pride or you just have a desire to pursue your own agenda, to be the captain of your own ship. I don't know, what holds you back? Friends, I want to urge you to bring whatever it is before the Lord and surrender it to Him. And depending on what it is, it might also be wise for you to include a trusted friend or involve an accountability partner or to, uh, to visit a Christian counselor as part of the help that you receive to let it go. Because it might not be easy to let go of whatever it is that's holding you back. But please hear me say this to you. The prize for which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus is far, far better from whatever you're holding on to. It will be worth it, friends. You can let that go. It will be worth it. The third foundational truth in this passage is this. Paul says, on our journey of faith, we must live what we have already learned. We must live what we have already learned. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul makes it clear here that what he wanted for himself, he also wanted for the church in Philippi. And he also wants it for us. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, he says. When Paul uses the word mature, he doesn't mean, uh, he doesn't mean people who have arrived, who have kind of gotten it all together and they're perfect now. For again, perfection is not attainable in this life. Stuart Briscoe, he pastored the Elmbrook Church in Milwaukee for many, many years. And I like how he paraphrases Paul's thought here. Stuart Briscoe says this, that when Paul talks about being mature, Paul is referring to people who are mature or complete in the sense that they have grown as far as they are able in the present and they are ready for their next lesson. Isn't that good? These people, they have grown as far as they are able in the present and they are ready for their next lesson. When Paul says he is mature, it means he is uh, living what he has already learned, and if God will reveal more, he'll absorb more. Mature believers will accept Paul's teaching, and they will rest in a salvation that is by grace alone, and they will passionately pursue a deeper and more complete knowledge of Jesus, rather than accepting the teaching of the Judaizers. And, you know, trusting in credentials and achievements. And Paul goes on to say, he says, And if some of you think differently, well, that too, God will make clear to you. And with that little phrase, Paul kind of just graciously, uh, humbly uh, acknowledges that everybody's faith in Christ develops differently. Everybody's faith develops at different speeds. Our faith develops through different means. We learn lessons in different orders. 
from each other. God does not mass produce maturity in his children. He works with each child as an individual. Some learn quickly, others learn more slowly. Some require only gentle persuasion. Some have to go through the school of hard knocks. But Paul was confident of this. He says, even if a person does not agree with him right now, God will eventually make the truth clear and will faithfully guide genuine believers until they reach maturity in Christ. You can be sure of this. If we disagree, God will make it clear at some point. He'll make, he'll make the truth clear. And in verse 16, Paul gives a very simple command to every believer. He says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. And those 11 words packed a punch for the church in Philippi. And they pack a punch for us as well. With this one sentence, Paul is saying, whatever your maturity level, whatever your maturity level, put into practice what you have already learned. In other words, do not use what is unclear as an excuse to disobey what is already clear. Because, Paul says, if you will faithfully obey what you've already learned, God will reveal more when we are ready to receive it. That's a good reminder for us, isn't it, friends? We are responsible to put our learnings into practice. We're responsible for that. We are called to make changes in our life. Changes to our attitudes and our behaviors, reorienting them around the teaching of Scripture so that we bring our life into alignment with the Bible's teaching, the teachings that have already been made clear to us. And here's the thing, friends, here's the thing. Being responsive to Spirit-anointed teaching is part of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. That's part of how we do that. But if we are unresponsive or disobedient to what God has revealed to us, then we should have no expectation that he's going to reveal anymore. We just shouldn't. Remember the biblical principle in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew? There's a principle that says, he who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with more. With the clear implication that if we are not faithful with a little, we will not necessarily be entrusted with more. And I want to say something to you as a church family. In my first year with you, and today marks the one year of when the very first Sunday I came to candidate with you. In my first year with you, you all have been such an encouragement to me as you have consistently opened your hearts to joyfully and humbly receive the teaching of God's word and to put it into practice. And it is my prayer that God will enable us to abound in this quality even more, even more, so that we can encourage each other in the things that we're learning. And I continue to pray that God will be doing this work first in my heart so that as your pastor, I can be setting a Christ-honoring example for all of you. But I also pray this for our elders and for our staff and for all of you as well. May God continue to empower and inspire all of us together to live 
what we have already learned. That's my prayer for you. The fourth foundational truth that Paul gives us in this section is he says, on our journey of faith, we must follow godly examples. On our journey of faith, we must follow godly examples. Look at verses 17 to 19. He says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. In these verses, Paul is making a really strong appeal to his readers. Join with others in following my example. Paul is calling the Philippians to imitate his walk with Christ, to pattern their lives after the example or blueprint of Paul's life. And please understand, this is not Paul's ego talking. Some people think Paul's pride is kind of rearing its ugly head here. That's not what's happening here. Paul has always pointed people to Jesus which is exactly what he's doing here in the larger context of this letter. But, but, at the time this letter to the Philippians was written, the New Testament had not yet been printed and it wasn't circulating widely. So Paul couldn't just say to any group of people reading this letter, well, pick up your Bibles and learn to live as Christ would do. We can say that today, but he couldn't say that then. His example, his personal example as an apostle was the best pattern that he could give them to imitate. And that's why he did it. Not because he was proud, but because he wanted to give them a practical example. And his example as an apostle was the best he could provide. And so he did. Now, in the context of chapter 3, Paul is urging the Philippians not to follow the example of the Judaizers, these false teachers. Don't follow their example. But rather, Paul says, follow the pattern of my life and others who live according to the pattern set by the apostles. In verse 18, Paul warned the Philippian church about false teachers, and he warned them with tears. That's how deeply all of this stirred Paul's heart, how much he loved this church in Philippi. Many live as enemies of the cross, he said. And in verse 19, he says, you know who the enemies of the cross are because there are four characteristics that are true of them. You'll recognize them by four characteristics. First, he says, their destiny is their destruction. Their gospel is not resting on God's grace alone. It rests upon human effort and good works, which means their gospel will never save them. It will only lead to their destruction. Second, he says, their God is their stomach. Their God is their stomach. And what he means is these false teachers are driven by earthly desires. They want to have notoriety and fame. They want to be recognized by men, applauded by men. They are slaves to the appetites of their flesh. Third, Paul says, their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. That means they seek the praise of men as they boast about achievements and credentials. 
And their pride and arrogance should bring them shame, but it doesn't. They actually glory in it. And then fourth, he says, their, pride, their mind is on earthly things. Means their mind is not set on things above. They are focused on achieving some measure of earthly success. Paul says, you'll know the false teachers by their gospel, their pride, and their worldly cravings. They live reckless and wasted lives. And through tears, through tears, Paul pleads with the Philippians not to follow them. Paul implies that as long as Satan can keep those enemies of the cross blind to the truth, he moves closer and closer to victory over their souls. And Paul says, I don't want that to happen to you. Do not follow them, Paul says. Find godly examples to pattern your life after. And Paul could have referred back to Timothy and Epaphroditus back in chapter 2. Remember those two guys, they lived each day in a manner worthy of the gospel. And they adopted this humble servanthood attitude of Christ. They elevated the importance of others. And looked out for the interests of others, not just for their own interests. And they lived that way consistently without complaining or arguing. But there were certainly others. Timothy and Epaphroditus weren't the only two. And so Paul urged the Philippians to identify and imitate these other faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because faithful followers will lead you further into intimacy with Christ. False teachers are just going to lead you astray. And so with tears, with tears, Paul says to the Philippians, it really does matter who you listen to. It really does. It really does matter who you pattern your life after. Which leads me to pause for a moment and ask you this question. Do you have a couple people in your life who serve as godly examples for you? Do you have a couple of people in your life who serve as godly examples for you? Who these folks are is important because these are the people we turn to when the next step of faith leaves us scratching our head. We don't understand what the Lord's leading us to do. Or when we face bewildering circumstances and we don't know how to respond in a Christ-honoring way. Or when questions of faith arise or doubts arise and we don't have any answers. These are the people we turn to. These are also the people we turn to when life takes an unexpected turn and we don't know what to do. Or when big decisions need to be made and the path ahead of us is not clear one bit. Or when our world caves in and the pain just leaves us disoriented and reeling. These are the people we turn to. Who are the godly examples? And I am so thankful to the Lord for the, the people in my life who I can turn to when I don't know what to do. Those, those men and women are anchors for me. They provide stability and godly wisdom when the storm is raging around me, when my path is uncertain, or when my world gets turned upside down. And I want to encourage each one of you this morning to be intentional about building a support system of godly men and women around you. Build a support system of godly men and women around you so that you have ready access to people who will speak the truth to you, 
who will encourage your faith when you are uh, discouraged, who will walk through every valley with you, and who will call out the very best in you. We never know when we're going to need these folks, but I can, I can guarantee you this, we will all need them at some point at different times in our lives. And so I want to encourage you to be intentional about building that support system. That journey of faith requires godly examples. The fifth and final truth in this passage is this. On our journey of faith, we must live with eternity in mind. On the journey of faith, we must live with eternity in mind. Look at verses 20 and 21. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In this final section, Paul reminds the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. Paul, speaking of citizenship, would have struck a really deep chord with the Philippian church. And here's why. The little city of Philippi was a colony of Rome, which means that the citizens of Philippi were actually citizens of an earthly kingdom located 600 miles away. Most of the Philippians had never been to, most of the Philippians had never been to Rome, but their connection to the city of Rome was considered a very high honor in that part of the world. And as citizens of a Roman colony, they were expected to promote the interests of Rome and to maintain the dignity of a Roman citizen. And Paul appeals to this sense of citizenship. And he reminds the Philippian believers that they have a greater citizenship greater than the one to Rome, one that far surpasses their connection to Rome. They have a more praiseworthy and more honorable citizenship in another far-off kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Yes, Paul says, you live on earth temporarily as a colony of believers, but this world is not our home. We are foreigners and strangers here. Our home is in another kingdom. We belong to a different realm. And Paul reminds them that as citizens of heaven, they are to promote the interests of heaven while living on earth. And they are to lead lives worthy of heavenly citizenship. I think in these two verses, I think Paul is purposely contrasting Jesus with Caesar. And here's, here's what I mean when I say that. The Caesars who ruled over Rome believed they were divine they referred to themselves with titles like Lord and Savior. And they believed that their authority was absolute. So in verses 20 and 21, Paul is reminding the Philippian believers that while you might be citizens of an earthly city called Rome, you have primary allegiance to someone higher than Caesar. You are citizens of of a higher kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And he says, we eagerly await a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the power to bring all things under his control. Do you see the contrast with the Caesars? 
in a culture of power and control led by a Caesar, Paul reminds the church that God alone is sovereign and his kingdom suffers no rivals. Jesus alone is our Lord and Savior, not Caesar. And our ultimate allegiance is not to the country of our earthly citizenship, but rather our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of our heavenly citizenship. And so when Jesus returns someday as King of kings and Lord of lords, he is going to bring everything under control because he has absolute authority. There will be no more sin, no more false teachers, no more evil rulers, and even our human bodies, even these lowly human bodies, will be transformed by Jesus. And they will become like his glorious resurrection body. And what a promise that is for every single one of us. For those of us in this church family who are facing health and medical issues, I want to encourage you today. Hold on to joy and do not despair. Hold on to joy and do not despair because sickness and disease will not endure forever. The Lord might choose to bring healing to you in this life. And if he does, we will rejoice with you and praise his glorious name. But if he chooses to not bring healing in this life, then you can know for sure that he will bring healing and relief in eternity. In heaven, there will be no cancer, no Alzheimer's, no MS, no heart conditions, no diabetes, and no overactive parathyroid glands. <laughs> no one will be blind, deaf, addicted, or disabled in any way. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, and no more tears. Someday, friends, someday, our bodies will be renewed and they will be whole and healthy and they will function perfectly, exactly as God intended them to function before sin entered the world. And friends, because of that promise, we can choose to live today focused on eternity and we can give ourselves wholeheartedly to the passionate pursuit of knowing Christ as fully and as intimately as possible in the days marked out for us. And may God grant each one of us the unsurpassed joy and incalculable treasure of knowing Jesus and becoming like him. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And we thank you for the encouragement and joy and inspiration that it brings to us. Father, help us to keep pressing on in our own journey of faith. Help us to keep these five truths in our mind, that your spirit uh, would be at work in our spirit, compelling us to ponder and to reflect upon what we have learned today. God, I pray that your spirit would reveal the next step of spiritual growth that you want each one of us to take. And then I pray that he would give us the courage to take that step. Lord, help us to be a people who pursue you passionately, pressing on, distracted by nothing, slowed down by nothing. 
And may we continue to become a people that reflect our Lord Jesus Christ more fully so that our lives will give, will give to you the glory you so richly deserve. We pray all of this in your name because we love you and we want our lives to show that we love you. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.